I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. We're on the last leg of a long journey. We wait the final stretch. Noel Pearson is an Australian lawyer and a member of the Gugu Yumuthir, a people indigenous to the northeastern tip of Australia, now called the Cape York Peninsula. Soon every Australian over 18 years will wake and make their way in the millions, down roads, to walk bridges across every great river and harbour every stream, dry gully and flooding creek through the communities, towns and cities of the nation to cast their vote in a referendum. Noel Pearson is a strong yes vote in this coming Saturday's nationwide referendum. Seeking to approve an amendment to the Constitution of the Commonwealth, recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia through a voice. The voice Noel's referring to would be a new representative body in Australia. Its full name, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice to Parliament. Delegates from Indigenous communities across the country would debate issues of importance to their people and then address the Australian Parliament delivering the voice's recommendations. Polls suggest the Yes campaign has struggled to win over the majority of Australians. Clouds threaten the horizon, and thunderstorms of strife and discord are rumbling. We are being divided. It's not about giving some people a greater say than others based on their race. Do you believe the history of colonisation continues to have an impact on some Indigenous Australians? Uh, no, I don't think so. My fellow Australians, for many years, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have advocated for constitutional recognition through a voice. If you don't know, vote no. If you don't know, find out. A bit of terminology worth knowing. Australians distinguish between Aboriginal cultures and Torres Strait Islanders. The Torres Strait Islanders are people indigenous to 275 small islands, spread between the Cape York Peninsula and New Guinea. The archipelago is part of the Australian state of Queensland. Today, 90% of ethnic Torres Strait Islanders, around 55,000 people, live on the mainland. Representatives of both the islanders and Aboriginal Australians would make up the Indigenous voice to Parliament. As well as being a noted Yes campaigner, Noel Pearson was the 2022 Boyer Lecturer. The Boyers are Australia's equivalent of the Massey Lectures in Canada. In these five talks, delivered on ABC Radio National, Pearson gives his take on the backstory to the voice referendum. It's an Australian perspective of great relevance to Canada's own journey towards truth and reconciliation. 
Today we hear excerpts from Noel Pearson's opening two Boyer lectures. Lecture one is titled, Recognition. In my lecture, I will traverse three periods. Let me first refer to who we were. This is the period from 1788, moving past 1901 and ending in 1967. Emerging from a screening of a 2019 documentary about the end of the career of footballer Adam Goods, I thought about the trouble Australians have with Aboriginal people. The trouble is readily called racism, and certainly racism is much to do with it. But the reality is not that simple. We are a much unloved people. We're perhaps the ethnic group Australians feel least connected to. We are not popular and we are not personally known to many Australians. Few have met us and a small minority count us as friends. And despite never having met any of us and knowing very little about us other than what is in the media, and what W.E.H. Stanner, whose 1968 Boyer lectures will loom over my lectures, called folklore about us, Australians hold and express strong views about us, the great proportion of which is negative and unfriendly. It has ever been thus, worse in the past, but still true today. If success in the forthcoming referendum is predicated on our popularity as a people, then it is doubtful we will succeed. It does not and will not take much to mobilise antipathy against Aboriginal people and conjure the worst imaginings about us and the recognition we seek. For those who wish to oppose our recognition, it will be like shooting fish in a barrel, an inane thing to do, but easy, a heartless thing to do, but easy. Unlike same-sex marriage, there is not the requisite empathy of love to break through the prejudice, contempt and, yes, violence of the past. Australians simply do not have Aboriginal people within their circles of family and friendship with whom they can share fellow feeling. My reflection on the Goods film produced three thoughts. First, there's the original sin of Australian racism against Aboriginal people. The old assumption Aborigines were innately inferior and subhuman, was the strongest idea for almost one and a half centuries of colonial thinking. Listen to Stanner speak of how these ideas still formed the folklore of Australia at the end of the 1960s. I was asked the other day whether I did not agree that the Aborigines must have originated and evolved within Australia. My questioner was an earnest and a sensible man, and I asked him why he thought so. His answer was, because they are in every way so unlike any other people in the world. He was quite unaware that he was expressing a view common in Australia more than 130 years ago, 
a view which has stolidly withstood all the biological, anthropological, and archaeological information built up since that time. Well, popular folklore is like that, and our folklore about the Aborigines shows the qualities which distinguish it everywhere, a splendid credulity towards the unlikely, and an iron resolve to believe the improbable. It mixes truth and half-truth and untruth into hard little concretions of faith that defy dissolution by better knowledge. They are, in every way, so unlike any other people in the world. I believe original sin racism has greatly receded, and the vast majority of fair-minded Australians are repulsed by it. If there are now few remnants, its legacy is still prevalent. It is the second part that explains the enduring antipathy against my people today. It is the problem Australians have about the place the settlers slash invaders have in this country vis-a-vis Aboriginal peoples. It is a troubling and unsettled question involving denial and defensiveness, how to deal with guilt and truth. It is also such an old question going back to colonial days. If the colonists recognised the Indigenous, then would that not be a repudiation of who they were and their place in this country? Unlike the old racism... It is this fear of repudiation that lies at the heart of the country's trouble with Aboriginal people. The country just does not know how to deal with recognition without the old legacy of repudiation. Denial and a visceral antipathy is the residue. After the discombobulation of the goods film, I realised a third aspect of this trouble. It is what I call the white versus white over black problem. A large part of the conflagration in these past 50 years since racism became unacceptable in the 1960s is the fight between progressive and conservative Australians over race and Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people are the subjects of this fight, but they are not its prime protagonists. This is what is now the culture war between liberals and conservatives in the United States and progressives and conservatives here in Australia. That we have followed the Americans in this is unfortunate but not surprising. Race and the Aboriginal problem of Australia is about white Australians in a cultural and political struggle with other white Australians. It is yet another agenda of the culture wars. The progressives are seen as, and see themselves as, sympathetic to the Aborigines, and see their conservative opponents as bigoted and determined to hold on to the legacy of the country's old racism. And yet, as I will discuss later in my lectures, this dichotomy is not necessarily true. My realisation after Goods and his travails was that without sorting out that complex of matters falling under the rubric of recognition, we will forever think that what we call racism is at the heart of our problem as a nation 
rather than our not knowing who we are. Of all of the claims I will make in these lectures, this is the boldest and one of which I am most convicted. Racism will diminish in this country when we succeed with recognition. It will not have the same purchase on us, neither on the majority party that has defaulted to it over two centuries, nor the minority that lives it, fears it, and who too often succumb to the very fear itself. The Assumption of the Doctrine of Terra Nullius that Australia was not owned and was open to British settlement without consideration of the native owners, together with the racism that replaced the noble savage of Cook's enlightenment with a vicious view of the natives aimed at facilitating frontier violence and dispossession, mutating into the scientific racism of the post-Darwinian era of the 19th century and into the early 20th, combined to form the terrible ideology of the denial of recognition. The Australian colonial project needed this denial and was underpinned by its vehemence until well after the frontiers fell silent. After this, the great Australian silence just did not speak to this history. It was a denial which endured for more than 150 years. W. E. H. Stanner's 1968 lectures surveyed Australia's historiography and made the observation that inattention on such a scale cannot possibly be explained by absent-mindedness. It is a structural matter, a view from a window which has been carefully placed to exclude a whole quadrant of the landscape. What may well have begun as a simple forgetting of other possible views, turned under habit and over time into something like a cult of forgetfulness practised on a national scale. We have been able for so long to disremember the Aborigines that we're now hard put to keep them in mind even when we most want to do so. A cult of forgetfulness practised on a national scale. This is who we were until 1967. There was no recognition of Indigenous peoples when Lieutenant James Cook claimed possession of the continent on behalf of the Crown. There was no recognition when the First Fleet asserted British sovereignty in Sydney Cove in 1788. There was no recognition when each subsequent colony was established across the continent. There was no recognition when those colonies federated to form the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901. Let me turn to who we are. One of the peculiar realisations rereading Stanner's 1968 lectures is what little mention there is of the referendum held the year before. The 1967 referendum was the most successful amendment to the Australian Constitution since Federation, with 90% of Australians voting yes. It appears that to Stanner, the 1967 amendments did not amount to much. One explanation might be that the amendments did not effect positive recognition or acknowledgement 
of Aboriginal people. The previous exclusion of Aboriginal people from the law-making power of the Commonwealth Parliament under Section 5126, the race power, was deleted so that the Parliament had power to legislate in respect of any race. And our exclusion from being counted in the census was also reversed. The Australian Constitution moved from negative exclusion to neutral silence. But the 1967 referendum was not positive recognition. I expect this is the reason for Stanner's lack of interest in it. Citizenship was necessary, but not sufficient. The half-century since 1967 broke the silence in Australian history, and various reforms and improvements were made as a consequence of the exercise of legislative power by the Commonwealth Parliament. Yet the original failure of recognition was not remedied. Let me point out what is incontrovertible. Australia doesn't make sense without recognition. Until the First Peoples are afforded our rightful place, we are a nation missing its most vital heart. The rift in our national soul becomes apparent each passing January. The old idea of an Australia that started on 26 January 1788, and that's that, has frayed and for a long time our leaders haven't known what to do. The standard mode was to ignore the dissonance and all of the consequences that flow from the failure of recognition for 11 months of the year, and then to panic in January about how we're going to deal with Australia Day. Repudiation is the enemy of recognition. In fighting against the repudiation of the country's Indigenous heritage, no answer lies in the repudiation of its British heritage. They both endure for the memory and advantage of all Australians, even as we face the truths of our colonial past. For our history is replete with shame and pride, failure and achievement, fear and love cruelty and kindness, conflict and comity, mistake and brilliance, folly and glory. We should never shy away from any side of the truth. Our Australian storylines entwine further each generation, and we should ever strive to leave our country better for our children. Let me lay out what lies on the horizon and who we can be. A yes vote in the voice referendum will guarantee that Indigenous peoples will always have a say in laws and policies made about us. This constitutional partnership will empower us to work together towards better policies and practical outcomes for Indigenous communities. Mutual recognition will enable us to acknowledge three stories, the ancient Indigenous heritage, which is Australia's foundation, the British institutions built upon it, and the adorning gift of multicultural migration. 
The first story of our ancient Indigenous heritage is best described in the Uluru Statement. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first nations of the Australian continent and its islands, possessed under ancient laws and customs, according to the reckoning of culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science for more than 65 millennia. This is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with their ancestors. The second story of our British institutions that were built upon it recognises that those who sailed the first fleet, landing at Sydney Cove, carried upon their shoulders the common law of England when the sovereignty of the British crown was proclaimed. From eyes on board ship, this was a settlement, and from eyes on shore, an invasion. The eve of the 25th and the dawn of the 26th January 1788 is when ancient Australia became the new Australia. The Britons and Irish, convict and free, who founded this institutional heritage, made the Commonwealth from 1901 a great democracy of the globe. The third story is the gift of multicultural migration and recognises that peoples from the earth over brought their multitude of cultural gifts to Australia. That we celebrate diversity in unity makes us a beacon to the world. When we renounced the white Australia policy, we made a better Commonwealth. These three stories will make us one, Australians. Constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians is not a project of identity politics. It is Australia's longest standing and unresolved project for justice, unity and inclusion. Let me end with a thought experiment. Easter Saturday, 1891. The leading lights of the six colonies have come together to draw up the Constitution on the paddle steamer Lucinda, anchored on the western foreshores of Pittwater in Sydney's north. There to spend a mammoth 13-hour session drafting the Constitution of the proposed Commonwealth of Australia. The Constitutional Committee is hosted by Sir Samuel Griffith, Premier of Queensland and later First Chief Justice of the High Court. Edmund Barton, later the nation's first Prime Minister, is there, as is Charles Kingston, future Premier of South Australia. Sir John Downer is there for some time with other founding fathers of the new nation, once described by Professor Marcia Langton with great affection, of course, as a collection of beards, moustaches and whiskers 
protruding from venerable ears, noses and eyebrows. The core of the Australian Constitution is drafted here. The work done over that Easter weekend is decisive in the constitutional history of the nation. Imagine the committee on board the Lucinda is made aware of a gathering of ambassadors representing tribes from all compass points of ancient Australia, north, south, east and west. At the invitation of the Eora peoples, they have come to make representations to those drafting the constitution of the new Commonwealth. Their people have suffered great depredations in the past 100 years of frontier conflict and dispossession. Their numbers are now much diminished, and many tribes are near driven off the face of the earth. If these representations included the constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples through a voice to the Parliament and Executive Government in order to create a dialogue between the old and new Australians in respect of the country's heritage and its future, what would those on board the Lucinda respond with the benefit of our hindsight today? I ask each of us, what would our response be if we were on board the Lucinda? Thank you. On Ideas, you're listening to Noel Pearson's Boyer Lectures from ABC Radio National in Australia. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name's Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. In Canada, the Assembly of First Nations brings together chiefs from its member nations twice a year. It also operates year-round as an advocacy organization, running committees and providing services. The AFN gets most of its funding from the federal government, but it's not itself part of the Canadian government. What Australians will decide this Saturday is whether their country's constitution should require the existence of a representative body for Indigenous people, just like it requires the existence of the Parliament and the courts. The proposal would make what's called the Indigenous Voice to Parliament a permanent fixture of Australia's governing structure. At first glance, it can be hard to see the full significance of this placement in the constitution. In Noel Pearson's second Boyer lecture, he gets into the details of why the constitutional recognition matters and why it took 15 years to get this particular proposal in front of the Australian people. His lecture is called A Rightful But Not Separate Place. 
It is 54 years since W.E.H. Stanner's 1968 Boyer Lectures After the Dreaming. In these lectures, I could not avoid the illumination of Stanner's original. In my view, still the greatest of the Boyers, and as vital today as when first delivered. In the course of my lectures, I will reflect on his salient insights into the condition and standing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples within the Commonwealth of Australia a half century on. Stanner said in his second lecture, On the evidence, the Aborigines have always been looking for two things, a decent union of their lives with ours, but on terms that let them preserve their own identity, and not their inclusion, willy-nilly in our scheme of things, and a fake identity, but development within a new way of life that has the imprint of their own ideas. He was right then, and his formulations still correct today. Aboriginal people seek a decent union of their lives with other Australians, but on terms that let them preserve their own identity. Stanner's words that the Aborigines seek development within a new way of life that has the imprint of their own ideas could not be better expressed today. Stanner's words capture the essence of our challenge. It is about the right balance between commonality and difference, unity and diversity, citizenship and peoplehood, development and heritage. How to give effect to this goes to the heart of how Aboriginal identity is to be recognised within the scheme of the Australian Federation. The road upon which we are embarked for a referendum on the constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians has its genesis in this lacuna, the proper resolution of which remained forlorn until now. The pathway to this current prospect was opened by the 25th Prime Minister of Australia. On the eve of the 2007 federal election, the self-proclaimed most conservative leader the Liberal Party has ever had opened his election campaign with a speech to the Sydney Institute that remains to this day the core rationale for constitutional recognition. It is fascinating to reread 15 years later. There are few better justifications for this agenda than this speech its importance lies in its conservatism. John Howard said, For my generation, and that is Australians who came of age in the 1950s and 1960s, it has been ever-present, a subject of deep sorrow and of great hope. The challenge and, in many ways, the unfinished business of our time, and that is the place of Indigenous people in the profound, unfolding and compelling story of Australia. He admitted, 
there have been low points when dialogue between me as Prime Minister and many Indigenous leaders dwindled almost to the point of non-existence. I fully accept my share of the blame for that. The challenge I have faced around Indigenous identity politics is in part an artefact of who I am and the time in which I grew up. I have always acknowledged the past mistreatment of Aboriginal people and have frequently said that the treatment of Indigenous Australians represents the most blemished chapter in the history of our country. At the same time, I recognise that the parlous position of Indigenous Australians does have its roots in history and that past injustices have a real legacy in the present. Then he crossed the Rubicon. I believe we must find room in our national life to formally recognise the special status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the first peoples of our nation. We must recognise the distinctiveness of Indigenous identity and culture and the right of Indigenous people to preserve that heritage. The crisis of Indigenous social and cultural disintegration requires a stronger affirmation of Indigenous identity and culture as a source of dignity, self-esteem and pride. He made this commitment. I sense that the Australian people want to move and they want to move towards a new settlement of this issue. And I share that desire, which is why I'm here tonight. I announce that if I'm re-elected, I will put to the Australian people within 18 months a referendum to formally recognise Indigenous Australians in our constitution, their history as the first inhabitants of our country, their unique heritage of language and culture, and their special, though not separate, place within a reconciled, indivisible nation. Now, for the first time in a long time, we can see the outline of a new settlement for Indigenous policy in Australia. It stands at a point of intersection between rights and responsibilities, between the symbolic and the practical. The Prime Minister's formulation here of recognising the special, though not separate, place of Indigenous Australians is the key. It is a settlement that will speak to the point Stanner made in 1968, enabling Aboriginal people to define a decent union with their fellow Australians on terms that let them preserve their own identity. The cause of recognition is not a separatist cause. Far from it. It is a cause for peace and unity. It represents the desire for reconciliation and what the country's 21st Prime Minister Gough Whitlam called our people's rightful place in the nation. Let me combine Whitlam and Howard's words and suggest 
that recognition is about the rightful but not separate place of Indigenous Australians in the Commonwealth of Australia. Indigenous Australians want in to the Australian Constitution. That is the point. Despite the history of discrimination and exclusion, despite everything, we want in. We want to be part of Australia, formally and permanently. Howard's 2007 speech was not the first word on constitutional recognition. Its provenance is the Aboriginal rights struggle, going back to the earliest days of the Federation. But it was this commitment that precipitated these past 15 years of slow yet inexorable progress towards a referendum. No Australian Prime Minister, Labor or Liberal, has gone to an election this past decade and a half without the same commitment to constitutional recognition. Rudd, Gillard, Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison all carried constitutional recognition in their election platforms in the six elections held since the Howard government's last term. In these 15 years, there were two public inquiries undertaken by committees established by governments of the day in consultation with opposition and minor parties. The expert panel of 2011-12 and referendum council of 2016-17. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People's Recognition Act was enacted by the Gillard government in 2013 with bipartisan support. Two parliamentary committees were convened during this period. Consultations included public meetings around the country, including 12 regional dialogues with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities that culminated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart in May 2017. No public policy question in Australia has been subject to as much inquiry, research, public consultation and report writing as the constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. The full arsenal of public policy and democratic procedure of Parliament and executive government have been engaged in developing the case for recognition and the evolution of constitutional reform options for more than a decade. This long process shaped the arguments for and against the case and subjected reform propositions to public and professional scrutiny so that the final proposal for a voice enshrined in the Constitution is the product of assiduous hammering on the anvils of the country's democracy. It has been such a long road. Once the case for recognition received bipartisan support, 
The next question was where recognition is to be effected. Howard and Rudd answered in precisely the same way. It was to be effected in Australia's most supreme legal instrument, its constitution. It is not merely recognition in some extra-legal declaration or proclamation or by legislative enactment of the National Parliament. It is the constitutional recognition effected by amendment to the nation's constitution. What form that amendment takes is a secondary question about how recognition is to be effected. Proponents of recognition may differ on the form, but left and right agreed the place for recognition was within the constitution of the Commonwealth. To be sure, the form of constitutional recognition is as important as its location. In 2007, Howard proposed recognition in a preamble to the Constitution, saying, My goal is to see a new statement of reconciliation incorporated into the preamble of the Australian Constitution. If elected, I would commit immediately to working in consultation with Indigenous leaders and others on this task. I engaged with Howard since the 2004 election. I became convinced the fourth term was the best opportunity to seek common ground with him. He was at the height of his powers. I believed he could be the Nixon who could go to China, but we all failed to capitalise on the opening. I wrote to the Prime Minister on 17 September 2007 that he was uniquely positioned to secure the following inspirational agenda for the country and met with him to make the argument that I first put in a letter to him to move Australia fundamentally but prudently. One, from symbolic and practical reconciliation to recognition of Indigenous people within a reconciled, indivisible nation. Two, from a repudiational republic, which is Australia's current default direction, to an affirmational republic. And three, from a welfare state to an opportunity state. It cannot be said that though long I didn't give this my best shot, the Prime Minister returned with the better liberal formulation of opportunity society, but was ultimately only convinced to move on Indigenous recognition. He concurred that repudiation of Australia's British heritage by the Republicans had crueled the Republican cause. And affirmation of that heritage was crucially correct but the Queen was still in rude and bustling health, so nothing would change as long as she reigned. I never supported preambular recognition. It was and is insufficient. The preamble that accompanied the 1999 referendum on the Republic 
was rejected by the Australian people. I believed it would be rejected again, not least because Indigenous people reject it and because constitutional conservatives warn it would empower the High Court to reinterpret the entire constitution. It is not a legally safe nor politically viable option. Hours before his speech, the Prime Minister's office sent me the embargoed speech where he committed to the preamble. I called his advisor and said I could not support it. This led to a phone call with the Prime Minister where I made clear my objections to preambular recognition. I said the recognition would need to be more substantial. The Prime Minister committed that options for constitutional recognition would be discussed with Indigenous leaders in the event his government was returned for a fifth term. I placed my store in his commitment, but no such term eventuated. However, Howard's 2007 proposal for constitutional reform was subjected to the democratic processes of the national government and parliament, which I have recapitulated here. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and their leaders submitted to these processes and sought to advocate and influence the evolving proposals for recognition. This process included engagement with the succession of Liberal and Labor Prime Ministers who followed. In his speech to the Sydney Institute on Election Eve 2007, John Howard was candid about the breakdown in dialogue between himself as Prime Minister and Indigenous leaders. He accepted his share of the blame for it. It was clearly something he felt keenly had been a problem with his government. It is this dialogue that the voice is directed at. The establishment of a formal body to speak with the Prime Minister and the executive government of the day and to the Parliament. It could not be the case that the personal preference of an individual whether a past leader or citizen, could so peremptorily discard the outcome of 15 years of democratic process, that some leaders have changed their minds from support to opposition, while others have changed from opposition to support, is not really the point. The point is the voice proposal was the outcome of the Referendum Council the bipartisan establishment of which took place during Tony Abbott's government and finalised by Malcolm Turnbull. Aboriginal people are entitled to expect that Australia's Westminster system obliges the former Prime Minister to respect the outcomes of serious democratic deliberation undertaken with hope and sincerity by the least powerful community in that system. There have been two compromises made in the model for recognition in the decade since the expert panel reported to the Parliament in January 2012. 
The expert panel put forward the preambular recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, a new clause recognising Indigenous languages, and a new non-discrimination clause, the most substantive of which was the constitutional guarantee against discrimination. It was this proposal that drew immediate hostility from constitutional conservatives. The possibility that such a provision would empower the High Court to overrule laws made by the Parliament led the Vice-Chancellor of the Australian Catholic University, Professor Greg Craven, to describe it as a one-line Bill of Rights. This is the objection of justiciability. The opposition of constitutional conservatives and the political right to diminishing parliamentary supremacy. Moreover, it was constitutional conservatives who were resistant to preambular words that may be used by the High Court to interpret the Constitution proper. It became clear in the aftermath of the expert panel report that its recommendations would meet with strong ideological opposition. A pivot was necessary, and it came from engagement with these very constitutional conservatives. Rather than providing a judicial guarantee of non-discrimination, they proposed Indigenous peoples be able to make recommendations to Parliament. It was to be a body providing non-binding advice to Parliament, not in Parliament. And the proposed body became the voice. It was in the wake of the Referendum Council's report that a second potentially fatal objection was raised, that the voice would be a third chamber of Parliament. This misrepresentation was highly damaging and led to a second pivot. Davis, Anderson and myself submitted a more streamlined draft to the Lisa Dodson Joint Select Committee in 2018. This provision, drafted by Davis, became the basis for the words now proposed by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. We are now entered a phase that represents our best chance to achieve recognition sought by our old people. Australians living today can bequeath to our children a commonwealth that accords a rightful place to its original peoples. The Uluru Statement from the Heart is Australia's greatest act of faith, hope and love. Faith in the possibilities. Faith in the Australian people. Faith against so much history undeserving of faith. How could a people against whom so many faithless acts were committed over two centuries revive a faith in their own country? It's also a statement of hope. Hope for the future. Notwithstanding, the mountains of bitter evidence to the contrary, and love. 
love for the country, for we could never walk away from Australia, do I need to say this is our country too? It is the only home we have. We should never let despair alienate us from the truth that Australia is our home. It is my sincere hope that opposition leader Peter Dutton will join our 31st Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, in proposing to the Australian people at a referendum next year an amendment that will secure the rightful but not separate place of Indigenous Australians in the Constitution of the Commonwealth. The following words were proposed by the Prime Minister, and I include the words the Prime Minister used in his preface to the three operative sentences. In recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the first peoples of Australia. One, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Two, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to Parliament and the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And three, the Parliament shall, subject to this Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Australians have been waiting for leadership on recognition. It is now at hand. Thank you. You are listening to Noel Pearson giving the 2022 Boyer Lectures on Australia's ABC Radio National. Thanks to Roy Huberman in Australia. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, to find out more about the Boyer Lectures. Next week, after this Saturday's referendum on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, you can hear excerpts from Noel Pearson's third, fourth and fifth lectures on the topics of welfare, education and Australian identity. Ideas is a broadcast and a podcast. Check out our vast archives. 300 past episodes are available for download. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Gabby Hagorilis. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.